Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Stephanie Malia Holm, the author of Empire's Mobius Strip, Historical Echoes in Italy's Crisis of Migration and Detention. Stephanie Malia Holm is the executive director of the ACUS Foundation. She writes and lectures on modern Italy and the Mediterranean, mobility studies, colonialism and imperialism, migration and detention, and tourism history and practice. Her essays and articles have been published in a wide range of venues, including the leading journals in the fields of Italian studies, tourism history, urban studies, and folklore. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. So in your bio, I just mentioned you're working in the nonprofit world and putting out scholarly work. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So about four years ago, I made the transition from the academic world into the nonprofit world. And prior to my position as executive director of the ACUS Foundation, I was presidential professor of Italian at the University of Oklahoma. And for personal reasons, I uh, left my position and settled near my family uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. What has been really interesting is that working in the nonprofit world has shaped my scholarship in ways that I did not foresee, in particular, learning how to craft a narrative and focusing on storytelling. Because as executive director, my job is to advance the mission and the vision of an organization. And to be able to do that in a succinct, inspiring way uh, really informed how I put together this book to craft a narrative in a succinct, (laughs) as much of a succinct way as possible. Before that, the earlier drafts of this book actually had a lot of theory and a lot of jargon in it. And I ended up stripping out all of that, almost all of it. There's a little bit left in there, but I wanted to be able to tell a story that people would want to read and to be able to digest quickly. And I I credit a lot of that coming from my work in the nonprofit sector. And how did you become interested in writing on this topic of Italy and migration in, in the past? So part of my graduate work at UC Berkeley focused on Italian colonialism and uh, my interest in colonialism and also my first book on tourism. I credit a lot to my upbringing in Hawaii. I was born and raised there and I was surrounded by these two phenomena of tourism and colonialism. And Italy was always an exotic other. Uh, so that led to me you know, studying European history, studying uh, Romance languages. And in the course of my graduate work, my first book was on tourism. It's called The Beautiful Country, Tourism in the Impossible State of Destination Italy. And in the course of researching that book, I had the occasion to spend a year in Rome. And when I was there... Um, As an American, I had to get a permit of stay, sort of a long-term visa to stay in Europe. And as part of that process, I had to go out to what's known as the Questura, 
there's an immigration questura or police headquarters on the outskirts of Rome. And when I took a taxi out there, I ended up getting out of the taxi and seeing this line that extended about 400 yards outside of the questura, which there were, you know, probably 100, 200 people waiting in line to to see about their immigration status. And because of the color of my skin, the passport that I was holding, the language that I spoke, I was able to jump the queue in front of this line. And even though my immigration status as extracomunitario was essentially the same as everyone else in this line, and really that got me to thinking about the differences, the the mobility generated inequality at work in this world, and why my mobility was privileged while others were not. The book is made up of three essays, looking at the island, the camp, and the village. Can you talk about your methodology for developing these essays? Absolutely. So these three sites, the island, the camp, and the village, are sites where I see competing mobility regimes in Italy accreting. And they really stemmed out of the field work that I did in Italy. So going to places like Lampedusa, which is the island where many migrants arrive from North Africa to the, to the borders of Europe uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, or going to a nomad camp, a campo nomadi, on the outskirts of Rome, where Roma and Sinti, who are pejoratively known as gypsies, are uh, encamped. We're going to the village, uh, which is what has become known for where previously historical refugee camps uh, transformed into villages in Italy in the 1950s and 60s. So the methodology really stemmed first from me physically going to these sites. I think part of that has to do with my background as a journalist. I spent three years as a journalist, both in the U.S. and Italy, reporting on both municipal politics, but also writing feature stories. And so seeing how the difference between those who could move by choice and those who moved by forced came to the fore in these places really anchored uh, the way that I organized the book. So I want to back up and just set the stage a little bit. Could you tell us about the time period and the geographic scope of Italy's colonization efforts? Sure. Uh, Italy's colonization efforts, we date to 1890, uh, when Italians officially occupied Eritrea in the Horn of Africa. Italy's colonial period officially ended in 1945. However, as the scholar Pamela Ballinger describes, Italy existed for a long time in an extended colonial twilight in that there was no really... uh, hard stop to colonization insofar as Italians continued to occupy and inhabit places like East Africa and Libya. So beginning in 1890, Italian forces occupied Eritrea. In 1900, uh, they took possession of a small concession in Tianjin, China, where a number of other European colonizing powers had small concessions. In 1911, Italian forces invaded Tripoli and took possession of Tripolitania and later Cyrenaica, uniting them both into Libya in 1934. Also in 1911, Italian forces invaded Rhodes and the Dodecanese Islands in Greece. And then later, in 1927, they took possession of Somalia, 
1936, they invaded Ethiopia, and in 1939, invaded Albania. So that is the rough trajectory of the Italian colonial project in the early 20th century. And you make a point in the book that this intersected with a massive loss of population from Italy itself. Can you talk more about that? I make a point that the Italian colonies, unlike in the case of Britain or France, were born out of fear. (laughs) Fear that Italy would lose its citizenry at precisely the moment it is just becoming a nation. Uh, The nation state was created in 1861 after a decades-long process that was quite violent, known as the Risorgimento. So in 1861, you have this unification of the state, and then a decade or two later, massive flows of Italian emigrants out of the country to places like the United States, to the Antipodes, Latin America, and all elsewhere in Europe. So the very moment that Italy becomes a nation state, it's losing its citizens. And so a number of Italian politicians conceived of the colonies as an alternative destination for Italian emigrants at that moment. And so uh, this really um, pushed forward colonial policy, uh, especially in Northern Africa. Did the history and the narrative of the historic Roman Empire play a role in Italian colonization? It absolutely did, particularly in Libya. So Libya, its nickname was known as La Quarta Sponda, the fourth shore, meaning that it's the fourth shore of the Mediterranean that belonged to Italy. Remember, in the ancient Romans called the Mediterranean Mare Nostrum, our sea, and it was their possession. So by taking, there was a really a narrative of taking back what had already belonged to them. And in colonial rhetoric and in colonial representation, the idea and the trope of Romanita, Romanness, dominated in that it was already Roman, so we are just taking back what belongs to us. You mentioned in the first essay, The Island, you look at Lampedusa and you talk about a number of things. But notably, there's a juxtaposition of migrants and luxury tourism. Can you tell us more? Well, that was really what I saw on the ground when I went to visit Lampedusa. And I did several field visits there. And, you know, arriving at this new airport, you know, which is etched along this this bluff um, close to the sea. It's this brand new sparkling airport. I came on a on a on a uh, airplane and I stayed in a and b and then I saw, you know, the boats arriving with migrants and being whisked away to this migrant detention center that is there on the island. And I got to thinking about how different these two experiences were and how if I chose not to, I wouldn't even have to see um, that experience of migrants if I did not want to, even though At times when I was there, there was a large graveyard of boats in the center of town near the old soccer field that were the boats used by migrants coming over from from North Africa. And so um, in my mind, there's no other place where tourism and migration and this difference between those who can move by choice like tourists and those who are moved by force like refugees, there's no place where these two 
two forces come into conflict so sharply. And this is the first site where you start to make that connection between the historical colonialism, which we've we've mentioned a couple of times here, and the modern day migration that Italy's experiencing. How significant is, in the terms of the island, the Mediterranean and understanding Italy's place in the region in today's context? And, and what lessons did you find from looking at the past that were relevant to your understanding of, of migration? Well, there were a lot of lessons. And in the island in particular, I saw that the te- techniques of containment and some of the juridical um, processes of exclusion and, uh, and or inclusion and exclusion were resurfacing today um, that were originally pioneered, I would say, in the colonial period that were resurfacing today in the crisis of migration and detention. Um, in particular, one example comes to mind, and that's with regard to citizenship. Uh, in the colonial period, there was in Libya um, a category known as special uh, Italian citizenship, cittadinanza italiana speciale. And that was accorded to various Libyans who wanted to give up their own Libyan citizenship and take on this special, I would call it a secondary or minor citizenship in which it accorded certain rights, uh, but not all rights, not a full citizenship um, as would an Italian citizen have. And we see this playing out again today in the Italian parliament debating types of citizenship or what I call gradated forms of citizenship um, for migrants in Italy today, as well as their children. And does that relate to the concept of temporary permanence that you mentioned? I think it does. In terms of temporary permanence, I mean, this is the oxymoron that defines so much of the crisis of migration and detention. Um, In fact, migrant detention centers were formerly known as centri di permanenza temporanea, centers of temporary permanence. Today, they're known as, they have a variety of designations, the most severe of which is the Center for Identification and Expulsion, the Centro di Identificazione e Respulsione. Um, I would say that temporary permanence describes a condition of limbo into which a migrant is thrust once he or she or they cross over the threshold into the illegality industry, which, as I write, is often a one-way ticket. Once you cross that threshold, there's no going back. No one begins a migrant journey thinking that they are an illegal immigrant, but once one becomes imbricated within this illegality industry, that category comes to be lived and felt and absorbed uh, physically and psychically. And so the title of the book, Empire's Mobius Strip, I take the Mobius Strip as my guiding metaphor, because as you know, it's a a topological or topographical figure. It looks like a ribbon that's with a single twist that's endlessly looping upon itself. And the main mathematical property of the Mobius Strip is that it cannot be oriented. Um, 
can't know what's up or down, back or forth. And to me, this describes the feeling of being thrust, of being crossing over that threshold into the illegality industry and what one experiences when one is categorized as illegal immigrant. The Mobius Strip is also a metaphor for the connecting and the looping the looping um, effect of past and present, of colonial past resurfacing in migration present, coming back over and over and over again. And so, yes, temporary permanence embodies um, the, the limbo that is very much characteristic of the illegality industry today. How does empire and the concept of empire impact migration even after an empire's decline? That's a good question. The way that I'm defining empire is the exercise of power over people. And there's a lot of scholarship, one on colonial imperialism, which is what we typically think about, um, you know, European powers scrambling for Africa, for example, in the late 19th century. But there's also scholarship on the rise of a deterritorialized empire and the ways that it challenges sovereignty of nation states. Um, and so I'm trying to combine these different understandings of empire broadly under the notion that it is the exercise of power over people. How is the desire to control mobility used by states? to help consolidate their power. In the colonial period, we see very clearly that the control of the movement of people, goods, and ideas was put into the service of advancing state power in the form of colonial administrations. And I believe we also see that coming to the fore today, particularly with debates on illegal immigration. And the control of movement of people along borders in particular, um, we see state power being exercised and spatialized, in particular with debates about creating a wall. Um, I look at the parallel. There was a parallel example in Italian colonial Libya in which the Italian administration wanted to stop the movement of people and goods along the Egyptian Libyan border. So they built a 187 mile long wall. It was a, a fence of barbed wire that was 30 meters wide, laced with landmines to stop this movement. And I see that as a clear expression of state power uh, and exercising um, or advancing itself by controlling mobility. And you talked about this a little bit in your own experience, but how does freedom of mobility create hierarchy and disparities between different people based on their on their ability to move? There's a wonderful book uh, by John Uri and Anthony Elliott called Mobile Lives, where they really tease out the disparities between those who can move by choice and those who move by force. So they name um those who move by choice, it's a class of mobile elites who, for whom a borderless, globalized, liquid world where the, you know one can move 
through airport lounges, through passport controls, through the hat, and they all and one also has access to communicative and virtual mobilities. For this class of people, mobility is holds within it emancipatory potentials. There's freedom within that. A borderless world for them is a utopia and a unique ideal. On the other hand, for a vastly larger underclass of people who don't have the right passports, who don't come from the right countries, and I'm using right in scare quotes here, um, mobility is uh, has debilitated, if not devastated, uh, their lives. So you know, if you think about um, refugees fleeing, uh, I'm thinking of contemporary examples, thinking about refugees fleeing Syria, um, or uh, or Central America, where countries are literally torn apart by violence and war, um, the idea that mobility holds within it freedoms, but in practice, for this vastly underclass, of, larger underclass of people, mobility um, becomes more like a prison than anything else, and in fact, often leads to imprisonment and incarceration and detention. And so, the what. Elliot and Uri call this is mobility generated inequality. And it is, I think, the main dividing factor of our time. Talking about the tension, it might be a good segue to the, the second part of your book where you talk about the camp. And what did you explore in Ponte Galleria? So Ponte Galleria is a the largest migrant detention center in Italy. It is located on the outskirts of Rome. Um, it is classified as a center of identification and expulsion. And thousands of tourists and Italians pass by it each day on the train from Fiumicino Airport, going from the airport to the center of the city, not even knowing that it's there. And I remember when I went to, to visit, I did a couple of field visits there. Um, access was fairly easy. I could take a train there. And then when I went in, it had the look and the feel of a prison. And, you know, I thought to myself, here I am as a, essentially I was in Italy on a tourist visa when I did that, uh, that research and um, visiting with and interviewing people who were also there, um, but with the wrong passports and the wrong type of mobility. One thing that really struck me when I was at Ponte Galeria was the centrality of the cellular telephone. That was the mechanism through which uh, people who were in prison there could talk to lawyers, could negotiate, um, could figure out the best way to move through this bureaucratic labyrinth that they had become imbricated within. And when I say bureaucratic labyrinth, we have competing legal sovereignties. We have also um, medical circuits, which instantiate biopower in its most transparent form with medical exams given by the state, um, people's you know, biological data recorded and, and sent on. And so um, what I really saw in this in Ponte Galeria was this intersection of legal grammars and medical circuits that were both conditioned by 
the state. As you delve into the bureaucracy and legal terminology of status, did you find comparisons of how that status bore out in in different locations that you studied? In the past, if I looked to historical refugee camps, there was the same kind of, I would say, intersecting legal sovereignties for sure, not necessarily the medical circuits that I observed at Ponte Galeria. Um, But to give an example, at Ponte Galeria, we have, you know, Italian law uh, that it's coming into play that also um, intersects with laws of the European Union, uh, international law, uh, human rights law, and then whatever laws um, from the states from which these migrants are coming from. So there's all of these competing legal sovereignties that are um, really unclear. And I think the same also played out, particularly with, say, historical refugee camps uh, in after World War II, where you have all of these competing Italian Istrians who moved from the Istrian Peninsula in the late 40s and 50s, who were housed in this series of refugee camps, uh, were both Italian, they were Istrian, and they were um, displaced. And so there were these competing and sometimes in conflict um, legal identifications, but also um, imagined communities that were taking place within these camps. I wanted to ask you about some of the historical camps that you talk about in this section also. And it seemed notable that there were there was a theme of Italy's interactions with nomadic populations, both in the past and, and more recent past. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. In Lib- Italian colonial Libya, the nomadic Bedouin tribes, particularly in Cyrenaica, which is the eastern portion of the country, were considered dangerous nomads. And in fact, the threat was given a name. It was called Il Grande Nomadismo, the Great Nomadism. And much of colonial policy was designed to combat this threat, uh, particularly in the 19, late 1920s and early 1930s. In the late 1920s, Italian colonial administrators decided that the best way to combat this threat was to establish a series of 16 concentration camps uh, on the plains of Cyrenaica. And these were camps that, similar to the migrant detention centers of today, existed in different gradations. So there were concentration camps, there were re-education camps, there were punishment camps, which were the worst of the lot. And it's a little known uh, history. It's a history that's little known outside of Libya itself. That more than the estimates are between seventy thousand to upwards of one hundred thousand, or at least two thirds of the country's Bedouin population, were imprisoned within these camps. Often, tribes were marched thousands of kilometers across the desert to be sequestered in these camps, and. Um, and so this history has been lost, as I said, to or chosen or disavowed um, within histories, histor- historiographies of modern European imperialism, even though it is very well remembered in Libya. So part of what my book is doing is recuperating this history and um, giving, it, uh, giving it the attention that it, that it deserves. 
And you talk in your book about that there's there's more research to be done in in Libya itself, but that recent events had made that difficult for you to to visit in person. Did you encounter any limitations? Are there things that you are wanting to look into further when when that becomes available? Yes, I did encounter limitations. I would say that there are incredible resources available in Libya that have not yet been fully um, accessed. One of which is the Libyan Studies Center. Um, has compiled a whole archive of oral histories about life in the camps. Some of this work has been published in Arabic. Um, I think it deserves to be translated into English. And I know that there is a generation of younger Libyan scholars that are already doing work on this. So I think for me, turning that work over to them um, is the is my my future course of action. And related to this lost history, you mentioned that Italy didn't really undergo a decolonization effort. Can you talk more about that? I think first the decolonization um, effort, as I said, existed more in an extended colonial twilight insofar as Italians continued to occupy uh, Libya and Eastern Africa, that is Eritrea, Somalia, and Ethiopia, well after the official end of colonization. I would say that also there's this the idea of the myth of Italians as good colonizers or Italiani brava gente uh, has pervaded or kind of uh, has pervaded what little of colonial history um, has come to light. That is, oh, Italians were good colonizers. They weren't, they didn't do um, they didn't commit atrocities in the same way that other European colonizing powers did. But when, in fact, um, the truth was that Italian uh, colonizers did commit some uh, incredible uh, violence against colonized subjects. And I'm thinking not just the 16 concentration camps in eastern Libya, but also, for example, the three-day massacre in Addis Ababa in 1937, which led to the death of upwards of 30,000 Ethiopians. And so this is the kind of history that, while remembered on site in uh, formerly, um, even though I, I would argue that um, Ethiopia and Ethiopians would claim that, they never, that the country was never colonized, um, in former colonies and possessions of Italy, this history is remembered very deeply and continues to be remembered in um, by generations long after Italians have left. Finally, you turn to the village. Where is the village and how is it different from the camp? What I say in the book is the village is the space where people who have survived the camp end up. And the village concretizes the temporary permanence and the existence in limbo that I write about in the island in the camp. And it is the space where I see the state power really being exercised in terms of citizenship. And state power uh, is exercised either through the recognition or the refusal of citizenship, which often comes to the fore in the space of the village. The examples that I give in the contemporary, in our contemporary moment, are the villaggi attrezzati or equipped villages that are built for Roma and Sinti on urban peripheries in Italy, 
but and also historically, um, the villages that were built for Italian or historically Italian refugees um, returning from the colonies or from Istria or from camps in Germany and Austria, uh, which I write about in that section. And can you talk about the role of the diaspora just in terms of both the Italian diaspora, but also people who are in a way diasporas of these refugee communities? That's a good question. Well, I'll talk first about the refugee community diaspora and then move into the Italian, Italy's many diasporas. Um, The first example that comes to mind are the Italians who were born and raised in Libya um, maybe lived in Libya until 1970 and then were forced to return to Italy after Gaddafi issued the day of expulsion, uh, expulsion order in 1970. This diasporic community um, has found a, a voice and a connection online, and they have a very strong online virtual presence. So in a way, this diaspora has become, um, exists through virtual mobilities. Um, I would say too, that the diaspora, the Italian diaspora, say what we typically think of in terms of Italian emigration to the United States or to, or to the Antipodes or other places in Europe has also pioneered these differing forms of belonging. Uh, so whether that's online, whether that's through cultural expressions in literature, film, poetry, uh, architecture, uh, I would think that that sets an example of how um, uh, how now new kind of migrant diasporas are being conceived and how they're being expressed in Italy today. Are there lessons from Italy's experience, both in the past and in the current migration situation that apply to other countries? I think absolutely. Uh, When I was doing this research and writing, I did a majority of it here in the United States. So that's really been my touch point. And and I visited sites in the U.S. where I saw our own colonial past touching down in the present. And these included places like... um, Alcatraz here in the San Francisco Bay Area, which itself was a carceral island, next to which was is Angel Island, this place where um, immigrants in the early 20th century arrived. Uh, you know, in 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 by the hundreds of thousands. I see this touching down in places like um, Manzanar, or, uh, which was the, a concentration camp for Japanese and Japanese Americans, where they were interned. In 1942, I see this playing out along our borders, particularly in the southwestern U.S. today. Again, I mentioned that parallel with the 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 187 mile long fence or wall that was built on the border of Egypt and Libya. So I think there are lessons to be learned from the past and what really didn't work, which was controlling mobility and creating a Kafkaesque bureaucracy uh, in terms of a pathway to citizenship. Uh, I think that the lessons that we can learn is to 
you know, show, uh, to create a clear pathway to citizenship, to pay fine-tuned attention to the structures and architectures of migration and, uh, and of detention that we first saw being um, worked out in the colonial era. Well, Stephanie, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure, absolutely. I'm working on a digital humanities project about those historical refugee camps uh, in Italy. These were the 109 refugee camps that were established for returning colonists, for uh, returning Italian colonists coming back from Africa uh, and the Aegean, as well as survivors, uh, Jewish survivors, as well as Istrian exiles being forced out of what is today Croatia and how those camps moved from temporary to permanent insofar as many of them were concretized into apartment buildings um, and other structures. And part of that was inter- what's interesting is that these, these Italians who inhabited these historical refugee camps were known as profughi nazionali, national refugees, which is a designation from the Italian state that existed before the 1951 Geneva Convention, which outlined our current working definition of refugees. So I'm looking at the historical um, notions of what it means to be a refugee. What does this mean um, for a refugee camp if it becomes, if it moves from temporary to permanent? And so I'm at the beginning of this project and I hope to map and interrogate the system of historical refugee camps to enlighten our meanings of refugee and camps today. Well, best of luck with that project, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Beth. It was a pleasure. Empire's Mobius Strip, Historical Echoes in Italy's Crisis of Migration and Detention by Stephanie Malia Holm is available now from Cornell University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.